Oxo's two-in-one citrus juicer can juice lemons for a cocktail and oranges for juice. But the coolest feature might actually be its drip-free pouring spout. Product engineer Becca Del Monte had to enlist the help of gravity to design it. The pouring spout is actually lower than the rest of the product because then in order to drip, the liquid has to actually climb up against gravity. So as long as you make like a very sharply pointed spout, you can really keep that drip from traveling back down. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO. Better. Guaranteed. Hey, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Stay tuned at the break for their quiz. Back in 2002, the town of Crofton, Maryland, became ground zero for monster sightings. The monster was a fish. But we're not talking about a guppy or Nemo. This fish had teeth. It could grow several feet long, and according to rumors, the thing could walk on land. It was called a snakehead, and it came to Crofton a couple of years prior when a local man ordered a few of the fish to be sent to him from New York City. He wanted to make a special kind of soup for his sick sister. Well, he never made that soup, and for a while he kept the fish in a tank until they got too big. Then... He dumped them into a nearby pond. Two years later, the pond contained over a thousand baby snakeheads and several adults. Local people panicked. They thought that the fish might find their way into a local stream or even worse, the nearby Potomac River. Even Stephen Colbert of The Daily Show at that time offered a plan to help control the population. With more on the northern snakehead, we take you out live to Stephen Colbert, who joins us now, our animal control expert. Yes, John. Stephen, has there been any progress in finding a solution to the environmental devastation being caused by these Chinese snakeheads? John, officials here are really grasping at straws. They're talking about administering electrical shocks to the water. They're toying with the idea of poisoning the waterways to flush the snakehead out. But they'll probably just kick those proposals back to some subcommittee that'll issue a report, and by next Friday, snakeheads will be swimming into your toilet bowl and snapping at your produce. (laughs) Thank you very much, Stephen. Colbert's attempt to sigh by November of 2002, authorities made the decision to poison the pond and kill the fish, snakeheads, and anything else that was living there. They thought they had the snakehead problem under control. They were wrong. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Okay, so back in the 1960s, the area known as the Tidal Potomac was kind of a food desert. This is Rob Sachs. He's a radio producer based in D.C. And so the Tidal Potomac is 108 miles of waterways, and it goes from Great Falls past D.C. and then empties out into the Chesapeake Bay. And it used to be so polluted, people couldn't swim there, and fishing was, like, not even at all feasible at all. And so back in 1965, 
President Johnson actually called it a national disgrace. It was actually filled with raw sewage and had all these algae blooms. It was totally disgusting. But then fast forward to 1972 and Congress passes the Clean Water Act. And that's when things really started to change. So you had better treatment of pollution going into the water and you had better treatment of raw sewage. And so things really started improving. And then something else happened. What was that? So an invasive species of plant called hydrilla moved in. Hydrilla, that's those uh, tall, spindly plants that you'll see in aquariums. Sometimes they make plastic ones, actually. Uh, I think that stuff is illegal at this point in some, if not all, the states because it's going to take over. So in this case, the hydrilla was a good thing because it helped oxygenate the water. And then it also restored the habitat for fish. And then this amazing thing happened where you had this river that was once called a national disgrace becomes almost like a national playground for anglers. And so you have all these fish repopulating the river, especially largemouth bass. And it becomes this hub for fishing in the region, which is amazing. I actually know this very well. You just made me think of my grandfather. My grandparents lived in Woodbridge, Virginia, which is right by the Potomac. And my grandpa was always out bass fishing. Right. And it seemed like everything's going well and you have all this big turnaround. But then 15 years ago, another major threat happens to pop up in the Potomac. Back in 2004, a Virginia fisherman near Mount Vernon reeled in something that wasn't supposed to be there. We started hearing about it from um, an angler who caught one, turned it into the uh, Game and Inland Fisheries in Virginia. That's Captain Steve Chaconis. I'm a Coast Guard uh, licensed charter boat captain. I specialize in largemouth bass on the Potomac River. It turns out the strange little fish was a snakehead. This particular species is native to parts of Asia. They kept reproducing, and in a small area, that dam got breached with heavy floodwaters and all of a sudden introducing thousands at one time into the Potomac River. And once they were there, they couldn't hide for long. They didn't look like any other fish in the Potomac. I'll let Captain Steve explain. I was asked a long time ago, they said, well, what'd you think when you caught your first snakehead? You'd never caught one before. And I said, well, I didn't know. They were mean, they were ugly, they were nasty, they were slimy. I thought I'd hooked a lawyer. But, but we, no, we cut it open, we saw it had a heart, so we knew it wasn't a lawyer. So one of the first things most people notice about the snakehead is that its mouth is full of sharp teeth. It looks like something you'd see out of a horror movie. And then there are other, shall we say, interesting traits, like the fact that it comes out of water to breathe. A fish breathing air kind of makes it seem more like a river monster than a fish. And then there's that slime that Captain Steve was talking about. These fish excrete an insane amount of nasty slime, which is totally gross. But it turns out it may be linked to a survival function. That's what John Odenkirk told me. He's a fisheries biologist with the Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries. They produce a slime coating that keeps them from desiccation, probably as an uh, adaption to their native habitats and, say, the rice paddies when you have the wet seasons and the dry seasons. It keeps them from drying out. Okay, so Bridget, the sliminess actually gives them the ability to live out of water, forget this, up to five days. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> and so when you put all these things together, the slime, the teeth, 
the fact they can live out of water for five days, and then they start showing up in your local river, well, what do you think that adds up to? I think you're talking about class A mass hysteria. Well, it stopped a little bit short of that, but it's kind of a great setup for a monster story, don't you think? Um, and Steve Chacon has told me that the media had a field day with this story. The media jumped all over it. It's the frankenfish who walks on land. It'll eat your children. It'll eat your dog. Snakehead fish have been spotted in Four Mile Run Creek in Arlington. And that is bad news for all of us, folks. Gail Pennybonkers live in Arlington. Give us the details on that. Gail? Well, it's an unpleasant and unwelcome surprise. And at one point, people were doing daily updates from the pond they traced that first snakehead back to. People couldn't get enough of the story. It went from a little local news story to a national news story. So when I was talking to fisheries biologist John Odenkirk, he told me that once Hollywood got wind of this story, it turned into a complete feeding frenzy. So Frankenfish was just uh, dubbed on them by the media, uh, Hollywood, movie writers, um, Fishzilla, Frankenfish. You got all that kind of stuff. So Snakeheads got mentioned on The Sopranos. And there was also an episode of CSI New York where a baby snakehead is found at a crime scene. Couldn't have been that easy to get. How did it end up at our crime scene? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it was left as a message. You know, these things are pretty vicious and they eat everything, even their own kind. The message could be in the name. And then there were not one, but two movies about killer snakeheads. One was called Frankenfish. That is not a shark. So you're saying there's a uh, swamp monster out here killing people? The other, Snakehead Terror. But beneath the surface lies a deadly danger. <laughs> and once the truth is discovered, <laughs> the hunt is on. If a breeding pair gets out of this lake and into the river system, there'll be no stopping them. They hide in the depths. So you're telling me that there's a river monster terrorizing the District of Columbia, and you've come here to tell us that the only way to save the country is we have to slay the monster and eat its heart. Is that really, Rob, what you've come to tell all of us? Uh, well, there actually is an eating part to this story, which I'll get to in a bit, but it's true. The snakehead became kind of this boogeyman or boogie fish, you might say, because they're just really ugly, slimy, and gross. So it's really easy to make them a villain, but the fact is they don't pose much of a threat to people at all. And things got way, way, way overblown. And this is something Captain Steve talked to me about. But as far as any other danger uh, to people, uh, all the the stories of how they were going to come out, walk on land, they don't walk on land. I mean, if if you had them on a tile floor and the floor was wet, they might be able to slither a little bit. But they're not walking. They don't go across your yard. They're not looking for for poodles for, for lunch. They're not biting little children? They could. Depends on how bad they've been. So how in the world did the snakeheads get the reputation that they were going to walk out of the water and start roaming around? Well, because of their slime and they're able to live out of water for five days, they also are able to wiggle around a bunch. So they wind up nowhere near the water, like 100 or 200 yards away, and they're in people's backyards and just in spots where you wouldn't expect to see a living fish. So John Odenkirk, the fishery biologist, explained this all to me. 
people find them in places where you wouldn't normally think of because it used to be wet and now it's dry. So they think, oh, they must have walked here. But no, they didn't walk there. They were just there and then it got dry and they didn't die because they secreted slime or burrowed in the mud. And voila, they're still alive. So even though they don't actually walk on land, Bridget, that that original pond that they traced the first snakehead back to has been named Walking Fish Pond. Like, it's actually an official name now, sanctioned by the government. And it's a nod to that media circus that happened a decade and a half ago. It's a, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, though. And all these features that at first glance seem kind of repulsive, these big teeth, the slime, to a biologist like John Odenkirk, they're actually really fascinating because they have these unique functions that have evolved with this fish. And, and ultimately, I think what it comes down to and why people really don't like this fish is because it's, it's flat out ugly. I mean, they're not about to win any beauty contest. And John Odenkirk said, um, the males are particularly nasty looking. People say snakeheads are ugly. I agree with them on a big ugly male. We call them a yeah, big ugly male. It just... They're just black. They're completely black. They have no pattern. Their heads are huge, and they're long and skinny, and they usually look all beat up. I don't know if it's from territorial battles or what, but they have, like, scars and, like, you know, just sores on them. Everybody knows that a, a good-looking monster is always going to be really ugly and look the part, right? Totally. But the thing is that even though these snakeheads are really scary-looking, they're actually a lot less dangerous than some of the other fish that don't have nearly as bad of a reputation. It's all down to marketing, I guess. You know, snakeheads were unfairly demonized by the media. Uh, maybe this was a this is a fake news tabloid smear campaign. We can all go home at this point, right? So snakeheads actually do pose a big danger, just not to humans. The biologists and the local officials in the area were actually really nervous about what these fish would do to the local population. Remember, we we're talking about the Potomac after it gotten cleaned up was this really beautiful ecosystem of fish jumping and and there were hawks and ospreys that feed off them and there was this really beautiful balance that they feared was going to be upset when you have this large predator fish moving in and potentially eating up everything in its sight. So that's why people were really nervous. And then they put in laws that said you're not allowed to move these fish, a live snakehead, um, across state lines. And, uh, of course, though, that didn't really stop it because of the flooding. So the snakeheads have been growing their their area since they got into the Potomac for the past 15 years. And that has people really concerned. Yeah, invasive species are a big problem. I read a lot about it happening up in the Great Lakes People are terrified that there's an invasive species of carp that's making its way up there. Yeah, so the carp in the Great Lakes, that's an issue. And then down in Florida, uh, where you have um, the Gulf of Mexico, there's the lionfish. And that has really been decimating coral reefs there. I actually heard that one lionfish occupying a coral reef will do something called reduced recruitment of native fishes by like 80%. So that basically means four out of five local fishes, if they see a lionfish there, like, I'm not going to live here. This place is not right for me. So it's no joke, this invasive species. It could really hurt the local populations. And that's why everyone was really, really alarmed when the snakehead started popping up along the Potomac. These snakeheads are an invasive species. Uh, that I think prompted a lot of concern, a lot of alarm uh, in the Potomac. So this is Dean Nowyuks. 
and he works for the Potomac River Keeper Network. They basically patrol the river looking for pollution sources. A lot of people were concerned that it would take over and start dominating and then obviously start you know, wiping out other populations of fish. When officials and environmentalists like Ding Yaoyaks first started seeing snakeheads in large quantities in the Potomac, they gathered a group of people together to talk strategy. And Captain Steve Jaconis was among them. One of the first things 10, 12 years ago when we, it was like a panic meeting. We had uh, fish fisheries biologists from regional states. We had uh, federal agencies. We all sat around a table and go, what do we do? What do we do? After the break, we figure out how to solve the real threat of this invasive species. And Rob even takes on a snakehead fish himself. Hey, it's time for another Bob's Red Mill grain quiz. And today I'm testing my colleague Christy Morrison on Faro. We're going to see what she knows. Hello. Hey, Christy. Hey, Bridget. You ready to talk about Faro? Faro. I could talk about Faro all day. <laughs> okay, well, this is kind of a chicken or the egg type of question. Which came first? Faro or wheat? I would say that it came first. I think Faro is kind of the mother of all wheat. I believe that's what they say. So I would say Faro's the big chicken. All right. Well, you're right. Of course. I love mother of all wheat. That sounds so good. And Faro is highly regarded in Italy, where it's been grown for generations by Tuscan farmers. And it's also delicious. It's easy to prepare. Learn more at bobsredmill.com. Kohler faucets are incredibly functional. They're hard-wearing, and they feature sprays with some really cool technology. The powerful, precise ring spray is great for everyday cleanup, but for really tough jobs, there's the sweep spray. Its wide blade of water forcefully pushes food off the plate and scraps right down the drain. Now, if you need even more power to clean or you want to fill a pot with water super fast, Boost Spray technology increases the flow rate of water by 30%. But sometimes a gentle approach is best. Think of washing delicate fruits and vegetables with no bruising or tearing. The Berry Soft Spray with its wide light spray is perfect for that job. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. A good tool can make experimenting in the kitchen fun. That's why Chef Steps created the Jewel. It takes sous vide cooking to the next level. I asked my test kitchen colleagues what they do with theirs. I actually sous vide sous vide a turkey once. I think vegetables can really benefit from it too. So you can also sous vide starburst candy and you can like arrange the color, sous vide it, and then they all kind of melt into one another and you can make jewelry with it. I actually have a sous vide starburst necklace at my desk. Jewel, perfect starburst necklaces every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code ATK2019 to get $15 off. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code ATK2019. Okay, Rob, uh, we've established that snakeheads are not, in fact, biting little kids, and they're not walking around at the malls. Uh, but you've got officials in the area that are still pretty panicked because the snakeheads are still, they're an invasive species, and they might really mess up that delicate ecosystem down there. 
And that took a long time to establish and rebuild because it was very polluted at one point. So what did everybody decide to do down there? All right. So their options were kind of limited because you can't just go in and root out the snakehead one by one. Remember, this is over 100 miles of waterways. So they're there. (laughs) What they actually decided to do was to say, we're going to go out and monitor the population. And to do this, they sent out a team of biologists on boats and they go through and they record, okay, how many snakeheads do we have in this particular area? And is it growing or decreasing from the year before? So they have like a decade's worth of material that they can look back on and see what's happening in the population. And so this is where John Odenkirk comes in because I was mentioning he's a a fisheries biologist, but he's actually a snakehead expert and pretty much the snakehead expert in the country gets flown out all over the place to talk about snakeheads. And so I went out this early spring and met up with him and we went out on a boat to go and monitor the population. So John is backing an 18-foot John boat into the water at Pohick Bay Regional Park. And I know this is confusing because they're called John Boats and his name is John, but stick with me here. Anyway, I want to take a second here and tell you a little bit more about John Odenkirk because not only is he one of the foremost experts on snakeheads in the country, he's basically the Indiana Jones of fisheries biologists. He's got a handlebar mustache, rocks a cool pair of Costa sunglasses, and has these beat up old dolls tied to the front of his boat. After we back the boat into the water, two other biologists arrive. Oh, I see your, your friends have arrived. Here. We got Reggie Bob and Mike Ozzel from Richmond, a.k.a. Robert Willis. That's Robert Willis, an assistant biologist, and Mike Eisel, John's counterpart in the district. Once we're all aboard, John Odenkirk tells me what we're going to do. And this guy has a Google Maps level of knowledge of these waterways. We're going to motor east into the sun, and that far shoreline is Maryland. And before we hit the shoreline... All right, well, what was the plan that you guys had? You were just going to cast out a few lines and see how many snakeheads you caught? That's what I originally thought we were going to do, but it turns out we are doing something completely different. We'll be turning on the generator here in a minute, and we'll start electrofishing with our target being northern snakeheads this morning. We'll try to tag as many as we can. I'll feel lucky if we get five or ten. Be good for our first run. All right, what the heck is electrofishing? I've never heard of that. What what kind of setup do you have? All right, so I had no idea either, and I asked John about this, and then he got into this really long explanation. Let me just summarize real quick. You've got this big retractable boom, and at the end of it are these galvanized steel cables, and they almost look like big daddy long leg spiders. And then they're lowered into the water, and then they turn on this generator, which sends an electric current into the water, and then that stuns all the fish in a five or six foot radius. So they just zap the fish. Sweet. So we're not going to be reeling in anything. We'll just be dipping our nets in after they're stunned. Yeah, cheating. We're cheating, man. Okay, here we go. You're literally zapping the water, and then do the snakeheads start bobbing up to the surface? Well, apparently that's what happened the day before when they were going through different waters. But when I got out with the crew, the snakeheads were not bobbing up so much for us. Pretty slow so far, huh? Yeah, that's 
that's what it's like to be a fisherman, right? Yeah, it's got to be patient. That's right. Even for us, sometimes, you know, fishing's fishing. Electricity or rod and reel. Did you manage to see any fish? We actually saw tons of fish, just not any snakeheads. Bluegill. Little baby. Rob, I have heard my share of fish tales in my life, and I know a good one when I when I hear one. I think I think you've just landed a big fish tail. So we spent an hour and a half sampling Virginia tidal tributaries for the snakehead, and things really weren't going well. And we even went to that little canal where the first snakehead was first spotted. Still nothing. And I asked John, like, what is going on here? I thought you said there'd be tons of snakeheads. And he said, well, this time of year, which was early spring, they're still a little bit sleepy. 48, 48 degrees water temp, which is not bad. I mean, I, what I tell fishermen is they're not going to, you're not going to consistently see snakeheads till the water is above 50 for a pretty sustained amount of time. So, you know, we're, we're a little, we got a little, a little eager, a little excited to get out. I think what happens is when the water is this cold, the snakeheads are kind of coming out of the semi-hibernative state that they're in for most of the winter. They're lethargic. You call it a torpor or just sort of, a, you know, it, it just, it, it's just like we're waking up, you know, they haven't got their, their coffee yet. And, and they just, they're, they're just kind of sleepwalking. Well, did you manage to wake any of them up or did you go home empty-handed? Okay, so remember when you heard John talking about that 50-degree mark being some type of magical thing where they all wake up? That happened on our trip. It was a nice spring day. And as we progressed, the air temperature heated up and then the water temperature, I think, got to 52 degrees or something like that. And then just at the end of our trip, just as Captain Mike, our, our biologist on the boat, was about to turn off the electricity, we got something. Hey, we got one. Oh my gosh. So finally, we, that's huge. That's a good size. That's probably a little bit above average. It's a good size fish. Whoa. Oh, it is nasty looking. <laughs> That one's probably the males. They're not the males aren't as pretty as the females. See the big head? Uh, kind of long and skinny. Oh yeah. It's uh yeah, it's the first fish we saw in an hour of shocking in three different creeks, so glad we got that one for you. <laughs> Alright, so then we get back to shore and they have to go through all their scientific stuff. So we measured the snake head and we took its weight and did this all on the back of the tailgate of their pickup truck. And this is where I really had a chance to see the snakehead up close for the first time. And Bridget, let me tell you, this is a really scary looking fish. I mean, the slime was real. <laughs> you could actually see it oozing off the snake. And it was like that much. It was like some snot coming off. It was disgusting. And when I touched it, you know, if I'm used to fish flopping around like a sunfish or something like that. This felt like a python writhing through my fingers. It was crazy. Oh, that is slimy. Oh! Oh, he's moving. Oh! Why am I not? Ew. Oh! Wow. That is one slimy fish. They are hard to hold. It feels like a snake. Is that why? Let me get this straight, though. Let's forget about the monster that you just caught. You spent a whole morning, and you're out in the river, and you were doing some surveying and electrofishing, and you only got one snakehead at the end of it. So, 
I'm just questioning whether it's such an invasive species or not. So remember, it was early in the season and a lot of the snakeheads might have been in this semi-dormant state. But you're actually right, Bridget. In the dozen or so years the snake has been studied in the Potomac, officials haven't actually seen it crowding out other species that they were afraid it might do. So it turns out that this big fear that the snakehead was going to eat up all the other fish, that really hasn't come to fruition. And this was confirmed to me by Dean Nowyucks from the Potomac Riverkeeper Network, the guy we heard from earlier. I think a lot of people were concerned that it would take over and start dominating and then obviously start you know, wiping out other populations of fish. Based on what I've heard, we haven't seen that. We've not seen a, a major impact. So here's the thing. Even though they haven't found it to be really hurting the Potomac just yet, it's still considered an invasive species. And if the officials and biologists had their druthers, they'd rather the snakehead not be there. And so they prefer that people who come upon a snakehead catch it and kill it. And again, remember, it's illegal to move these things across state lines. So they're trying to keep the population in check. And they're trying to make sure it doesn't become a bigger problem for the ecosystem because they don't know what will happen if it got into another random pond or somewhere else. And so this brings us back to our Bassmaster Captain, Steve Jaconis. He told me that snakeheads are actually really fun to catch. And it's attracting some sports fishermen because they think it's a cool thing to do, to go out and try to, to catch one of these things. And so... Out on a pond near Alexandria, Virginia, he demonstrated to me just how to snare one. I'll show you how to work this lure, too. I'll make another cast here, so right there. Okay, so the way I would work this, I'd just give little taps like this. You kind of see it just kind of... Moves left and right, left, right, left, right, that's it, left, right, that's it. So a lot of times while I'm working a bait like this, I'm also looking to see if a snakehead is following it. In clearer water, they look like torpedoes, and they'll come by, they'll take a look at it. You don't want to stop it. You want to just kind of agitate it a little bit, because if you stop it and they get a good look at it, they may not hit it. But if you just barely tap it, they'll come up and hit it. Sometimes they slash at it and they miss it, uh, sometimes they'll come back for it a second time. But when you hook a snakehead, it's a fight like no other. It's like trying to pull a dog off a fire hydrant. They really just, they don't want to come to you. They just sort of back up. So a lot of times, as soon as I hook one, I know, even if I'm bass fishing, I know that I've got a snakehead, even if it's a lure that's below the surface, and I don't really see them come up and get it. And if you're feeling more adventurous, you can try doing it with bow fishing. So this is actually bow and arrow fishing, kind of like Rambo style. It's pretty awesome because remember, these fish breathe air. So people like to hunt for them in the reeds along the shoreline. And so now the Potomac River is actually becoming somewhat of a destination for snakehead fishing. As Captain Steve Jaconis told me, the largest recorded snakeheads in the world have been caught here. This is like being known as the snakehead destination? Oh, no question. And the world record has been broken like three, four, five times. So the new world record snakehead came out of the Potomac River. It's uh, almost 19 pounds. 
All right, so we've established that the snakeheads are thrilling for the fishing industry, uh, great for sport, but is anybody eating them? Okay, so this was another fraught decision by Maryland and Virginia officials because they were thinking, well, on the one hand, maybe we can keep the population in check if we tell people to eat them, but we don't want people to like them too much because we don't want them to start commercially farming the fish, which is what Captain Steve said got us into the problem that we're in the first place so they're like i don't know but then they're like all right there's enough snakehead out there in the potomac that we should see if this is a viable option for keeping the population in check so they passed a law in maryland and then just more recently in virginia to allow restaurants to start selling these fish and putting them on the menu and have you started seeing any snakeheads on the menus around there so i visited denson's grocery and r&b oyster bar And this was the place that actually pushed the Virginia legislature to update their laws to allow the snakeheads to be sold in restaurants. And there I met with chef and co-owner Rocky Denson. He's the R in the R&B Oyster Bar. B is for his wife, Blair. Denson's is in a place called Colonial Beach, Virginia. It's right on the Potomac River. Matter of fact, we're located halfway between Richmond and D.C., Back in 1912, Denson's was a community grocery store. But a few years back, Rocky and Blair Denson decided to reopen it into a specialty food shop with a focus on foods from the Chesapeake Bay region. And then it evolved into a restaurant. So Rocky's an open-minded guy, too, when it comes to trying out new things. And that's how Snakeheads wound up on the menu. Actually, one of our workers, he went out and uh, shot one with bow and arrow and filleted it and brought it to me at home. And I kind of looked at it and went, yeah, all right, I'll I'll try it. My wife and I, my wife was like, snakehead, I I don't think so. But we fried it up anyway, and we both absolutely loved it. Okay, so that's how Rocky and Blair got sold on snakeheads, but I wanted to know what his customers thought about it. Why were you thinking, oh, I'll put something on the menu that says snakehead and then has this reputation of being this gnarly, slimy fish with big teeth? Why do you think your customers want to eat that? Well, they're very hesitant about it once they see snakehead on the menu. But once they try it, they they love it. Is it almost like, though, it's like a badge of honor? Like, uh, hey, I'm trying the the scary fish, the frankenfish. I'm going to eat that. I mean, because you could call it like, some people are saying, oh, maybe we'll call it Potomac Cod or something like that. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of different names floating around for this fish. But, you know, you got to call it the way it is. It's snakehead. I have a really good friend. And he came up with a wonderful quote. Malicious yet delicious. And that's the truth. There's, these, these fish are wonderful. So, Bridget, it felt wrong for me to drive all the way down from D.C. to Colonial Beach, Virginia, and come there empty-handed. So I actually came with that fish that John Odenkirk and his Indiana Jones crew of fishermen had electro-fished out for me uh, out of the water. And so I had my little cooler with me, and and I gave Rocky this nice filet that he promised to cook up for me. And... Let me just say, Rocky is this amazing cook. He's actually self-taught, but his little restaurant in Colonial Beach, Virginia, has become somewhat of a tourist destination, and he's gotten write-ups in magazines and everything. And so I was really excited about how he was going to prepare this snakehead. So first, he cut the filet into inch-and-a-half-long strips. Then he 
dipped it into buttermilk, and then he coated it in house autry, which is this seafood breading from North Carolina, and then it was into the fryer. Okay. So what we're gonna do, we've already put it in the buttermilk. I don't wanna mess this thing up. It's nice and clean. We're gonna go ahead and take the fish, drop it in the fryer. It's not gonna take the snakehead is like a mahi-mahi, or almost a swordfish in terms of its thickness, so it really holds up well in the fryer. And so after Rocky cooks them to a golden brown, he serves them with a remoulade, coleslaw, and sweet and spicy pickles. So, and you have it maybe in a sandwich? No, it comes out as bites. Oh, as bites? Yeah. So what, do you have a, a fun name for that, or just... Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty boring today, <laughs> Oh, like little snakes. <laughs> snakehead bites. <laughs> okay. You knew that was coming, didn't you? Let's call them snakehead bites. <laughs> okay, Rob, uh, here's the million-dollar question. How did that snakehead taste? Well, this was something I was really worried about because, remember, it was slimy. It felt like a python. I was like, oh, no. But it turned out to be really delicious. It didn't have any fishy taste to it. And it didn't fall apart because it had a a nice texture and it was really kind of meaty. It was almost more like I was eating a piece of meat than I was eating a piece of fish. Yeah. I mean, if someone told me these were chicken bites, I would believe it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. So despite all their PR problems, snakeheads or snakehead bites are really fun to eat and really, really tasty. So are people in Virginia lining up at these local restaurants to get their get their take of snakehead bites? Not quite yet. Now, remember, they're still a wild-caught fish, and they're not crazy abundant. And so Rocky's Maryland-based seafood supplier only sends them around 15 pounds a week in the peak season, which is spring and summer. And he says that only makes around 40 servings, so it's not really anything he can hang his hat on just yet. So I love that this story's kind of turned on its own heads. You you had, a decade or so ago, you had the horror, the monstrous frankenfish, and it was rumored to walk on on the land and have these sharp teeth and it was eating people. But now you have people eating the snakehead fish at those restaurants like Denson's. And then maybe the snakeheads are even giving a little bit of uh, revenue to the tourism industry in D.C. because you have sport fishermen coming from all over the world to take their crack at them. Exactly. And there's one final little bit of irony here, which is that the story of the snakehead is not even unique to the Potomac. Back when I was on the boat with snakehead expert John Odenkirk, he was telling me that foreign species have been adapting to the Potomac for centuries. Common carp, that's that's another non-native fish that I think is probably more damaging to the ecosystem that snakeheads have shown to be. The common carp have been here since the 1800s. The common carp are almost as ubiquitous as any organism can be in an aquatic system. And uh, figure out what to do with them, you'll make a million because there's so many pounds of common carp in every aquatic body. So there's also a blue catfish, which was introduced into the Potomac River system around the 1980s. And fishermen love to catch that. And even that largemouth bass that your grandfather loved to fish, 
and is pretty much the superstar of the Potomac, that's not native either. It was introduced back in the late 1800s by the U.S. Fish Commission, which is a forerunner of the Fish and Wildlife Service. So when you think about it, what's invasive versus simply non-native, it's all really kind of just relative. So that's the story of the malicious but delicious, maybe kind of misunderstood snakehead. I got one more really important question for you, Rob, putting you on the spot here. You didn't happen to send up any of those snakehead bites my way, did you? Uh, unfortunately, no. Um, I was worried that they weren't really going to keep if I mailed them uh, up to Boston for you. But I did get one little souvenir. Um, John Odenkirk, he saved me a tooth from the snakehead that we caught. And I'm, I hear they can make beautiful jewelry, maybe an earring or a necklace or something. So I, I can send that to you. Yeah, uh, wow that that was so nice of you to th- think about me. Um, but I, you know, I think I have enough uh, tooth necklaces, so I'm going to take a hard pass on that one. Fair enough, fair enough, Bridget. But uh, thanks so much, Rob. It's been my pleasure. That's producer Rob Sachs. Something that Rob said really struck me. It was the part about what's invasive versus non-native being relative. Well, that reminded me of a piece of gardening advice that I got from my neighbor. I had been complaining, maybe too much, about all the weeds in my yard when he said, well, a weed's just a plant that you don't want. It's all perception. And that really clicked with me. So while I'll go out to the yard and I'll still pick out any clover or crabgrass I find, I'll harvest the dandelion and I use it for dinner because that's one less weed. And how's this for perception? In Japan, snakeheads have been part of the culture for a long, long time. People love to fish for them and to eat them as well. But now they're worried about an invasive species that may be the cause of the decline of the snakehead population over there. And the monster fish that's killing off the snakehead? It's the same big mouth bass that you can pull out of the Potomac. I think it was Stephen King who said, and I'm really paraphrasing here, that the monster that he could create could never be as scary as the ones that live inside our imagination. I really think there's something to that. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our producer. Associate producer is Caroline Rickert. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Editing by Caitlin Kelleher, Sarah Joyner, Jordan Pearson, and Connor Olmsted. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Jack Bishop is top of the food chain and chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Mill, Kohler, Chef Steps, and Oxo. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Be sure to check out our website, www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. And you can get more info about this episode, including pictures of Rob with that snakehead fish that he caught on the Potomac. We've also got photos of Captain Steve Chaconis with his snakehead lures and Rocky Denson's snakehead bites. Go check it out. Oh, and one more thing. If you like proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write a review? 
because it really helps other people find the show. 